The following program is for informational and educational purposes only. This program does not replace medical, mental health, or psychological diagnosis and treatment prescribed by your personal physician, psychologist, therapist, or other health care provider. Please consult your provider for diagnosis and care before beginning or changing any program or idea discussed. Welcome to Psych Up Live with your host, Dr. Suzanne Phillips. This is the show that brings you a psychological perspective on common and current life issues. Here is Dr. Suzanne Phillips. Hi, folks. I'm Dr. Suzanne Phillips. Thanks again for joining me on Psych Up Live. There's little doubt that in the past year, our lives have changed in ways we could never have imagined. We have and continue to face a pandemic that has stolen the lives of loved ones, jobs, school days for little ones, college plans for our older kids, travel, weddings, family vacations. And just as we thought we were coming out of it, we've now been faced with a variant that seems to be even infecting children. As anxiety escalates in face of this resurgence, tension builds between those who recognize the vaccines as life-saving answers and those who view vaccines as invasive health care interventions. Media coverage and politics aside, family relationships are frayed with members who can't talk about their positions and are anxious, angry, and often estranged in these difficult times. Can there even be a discussion when people are so polarized? We are so fortunate to have as our guest expert today, Dr. Mina Mirholm, Columbia University psychiatrist, who invites us to apply what we know from psychological science to help us approach this difficult divide. Drawing upon his recent publication in Medscape, Dr. Mirholm will consider five respectful ways to approach an anti-vaxxer's hesitancy. As he says, there's a reason to find a way to bridge this divide. We are all in this together. Dr. Mina Mirholm is an assistant professor of psychiatry at Columbia University and is the medical director of the Department of Psychiatry in Clara Mays Medical Center. He is a board-certified psychiatrist and a consultant for the NBA Players Association, treating NBA players and staff. Dr. Mina Mirholm, it is my great privilege to welcome you to Psych Up Live. Thank you so much, Dr. Phillips. I'm, I'm honored to be with you, and I really appreciate your invitation. Okay, thanks. So let me ask you, was there a tipping point or something in particular that made you decide to write a piece on considering psychologically-minded ways to approach vaccine hesitancy? You know, there really was. Uh, beyond the general media coverage and kind of where we are in, at this point in the pandemic, for me, there was a personal tipping point where one of my good friends said, said, Mina, I'm afraid I can't talk to my mom anymore. And I said, why? What's going on? He said, I told her that um, I don't feel safe with her coming to my own child's birthday party because there's going to be people around and I'm afraid for her health, you know, unless she, she gets vaccinated. And that turned into a whole contentious debate between our family and I'm, I'm really worried about how this is going to play out. And, you know, can you help me? And that sort of prompted me to say, well, if this is happening in, in my good friend's life, certainly there are other families that are going through this. And the more I'm seeing the rhetoric on television in terms of here is the vaccine and how some folks are kind of approaching this from a, if you're not supporting this, you're anti-science. And then, you, you know, you just really in a not helpful kind of way, I thought, well, wouldn't it be nice if we just take a second here from a psychological, psychiatric perspective and say, 
how do we approach this differently? Because surely there's a better way that we can approach it that's not so contentious. Perfect. Okay, so let's start. Your first key way to start is begin with empathy, not evidence. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So for the past few months, since we've been awaiting the the coming of the vaccine as sort of this life-saving solution to the problem, we, as the medical community, got so excited, as we always do, about the evidence. We said, oh, my God, it's safe, it's effective. We were almost stunned, I think. The medical community was, was pleasantly surprised that, wow, this level of efficacy is not what we expected. This level of safety is incredible. We got so excited that we rode that wave a bit too high, um, is that whenever we're speaking with, with folks now, whether it's someone on, on TV, media coverage, or even one-on-one kind of doctor's offices, doctors I've spoken to, the conversation is so centered around data and evidence. And what we're seeing in, in real-world conversation, as you and I know, as we're talking to someone about life change, it's not always just with data points. It's not always evidence that really gets you. We begin sometimes by just an empathetic understanding of where the person is. If you don't have that, it doesn't matter what the evidence is. It doesn't matter how amazing your vaccine is. It doesn't matter how many studies we've done and how safe it is. That information never reaches the person because they are not felt like they are, they, or they don't come to feel that they are validated and listened to. And that's why the, one of the keys, I think, in this discussion is to take a step back, whether you're speaking with a, a loved one, a friend, around the dinner table, instead of saying, hey, this is safe, this is effective, how could you be so anti-science? You know, we begin by saying, well, let me just see what this person is feeling here. For, for, someone, for one person I spoke to yesterday, they said, you know, it's the first time that someone allowed me to express my fear around mm. this or around, right? And, and just kind of having the settling feeling of, I'm, I'm with you in this. I'm, I'm not against you. I'm not fighting you. I'm not going to fight you into getting the vaccine. I'm going to empathize with you, with you first. Mm-hmm. When you think about the people who are hesitant, it's interesting that you said that man was frightened. I kept thinking that there seems almost two groups, the very frightened and the very angry, and I'm not so sure they're different, but I it absolutely fits with what you're saying. If I'm very angry or I'm very frightened, uh, Dr. Mirholm, I'm dysregulated. You mm. could have all the data in the world on charts. I can't even comprehend it because my brain, my, my prefrontal cortex is right. not online. At right. that point, I am in a dysregulated state. So when someone's empathic and when someone, as you say, wants to connect and hear, we know that drops panic. Mm-hmm. We know that starts to facilitate coming out of a dysregulation. That's, that's so true. And, and, it's, and it's so powerful because the thing that we've tried now is the opposite, which is when we're seeing someone's anger, there has been an escalation of this anger, and we're coming at it with, well, you're angry about something that is so clear-cut, and that makes the person on the other side also angry, and, you know, it only feeds into the same cycle of, um, of, of that escalating emotion that there, neither side is really hurt, right, as opposed to feeling like, well, let me try to understand where this anger is coming from. Let me try to understand where this fear is coming from, and to know that it's not entirely unreasonable to feel this way, that there's... There's got to be a, a reason there somewhere. If maybe I can begin to understand it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, as soon as you show that respect, the possibility of them even speaking more about it, because as we are going to talk about it, and as I've experienced with people, 
it's not just fear about the vaccine. It's a feeling of they're telling me that this is what something I should get. I'm frightened of it for starters. I don't even know how I would go about getting it. In terms of my location, I'm a working single mother. Where where would I go? I, I live in the heartland. In fact, the author of Heartland did a piece in which she said, I'm infuriated with these people. And then I step back and remember, how would I be if I still was in the childhood I had? Mm-hmm. I There's no way I would understand that this was important to me. So I think the empathy opens the door for connection, and with connection, maybe hesitancy drops down a bit. I I couldn't agree more. Uh, And and like you said, this key here of just opening the door. And I think for us, oftentimes when we're approaching this conversation, you know, as you and I have to kind of talk offline, it's not necessarily going for the win right away, right? It's not necessarily saying, well, I'm going to have this conversation and... You know, I'm going to make sure that by the end of it, there's a needle in somebody's arm. Um, but just how do I open the door, right? And, and and we would really be surprised sometimes with the last person I spoke to probably yesterday uh, who began with a very loud uh, tone and, and very angry about the possibility of their family member getting the vaccine because they were someone I was, I was treating. And by the end, after a couple of tears in the conversation, it was more of a vulnerability of saying, you know, I just didn't have someone to to hear out my fear without judging me or without telling me, uh, labeling me in one way or another. And, and that in itself was new for her. And, and I felt mm-hmm. that was an important kind of opening of the door. Mm-hmm. So let's move into how empathy allows us to consider the context. Mm. So this is key. This is key because as you said, once we now, and you know, I, I like the analogy here of the door. Imagine if we're we're going to visit someone, you know, through in their house. So the first step here, yes, we open the door, and that's fantastic. Now we're in, now we're in the house, right? Let's say we're in the house of decision making. What is the context of this home? As we know, as you and I know, when we're treating folks, you know, uh, and getting to know their families and dynamics, your background, your experiences weigh heavily on how you see the world, right? We, as, as someone once said, we don't see the world as it is, we see the world as we are, right? Mm-hmm. So this context of maybe I'm approaching the healthcare community uh, to begin with from the lens of, you know, I had a terrible healthcare experience and I I'm, have a terrible mistrust of doctors because for centuries, you know, my particular racial or ethnic background was mistreated by medicine. So if, if, if the medical provider or if a friend or loved one understands that context and says, well, okay, you know what? When you're speaking from that context, when you're speaking from that racial or ethnic sort of understanding and, and experience with medicine, it makes sense for you to be hesitant. It makes sense for you to be to feel like medicine has mistreated you because it has. There have been realities like the Tuskegee experiment and, and others where we've had documented missteps in the medical community. So we must first begin by understanding that, whether it is something that affects an entire racial community or an ethnic community, or something that impacts an individual. You know, one other patient told me recently, he said, said, Doc, I I don't, no offense, you seem like a nice guy, but I don't, there's no way I can trust medicine. My mom, you know, died in the hospital. Mm -hmm. I said, well, you know, let's, so this is the lens by which he's approaching the conversation is that, sure, to other people, healthcare is helpful and nice and, you know, generally uh, good. But in his recent experience, he's associating healthcare with the death of his mother. 
So I mm-hmm. have to understand that lens, that context, if I'm going to have any conversation. Now, that brings me to a thought about um, connection with people, because it may not be that you and I would be the most successful, but if we were in a position to facilitate others who were more mm. trusted by your patient or community. We did a show with um, Dr. Wiley, who was an epidemiologist um, from Emory, and she mm. had a, um, an aunt and grandparents um, in Georgia. I believe it's Georgia, and she was, they were not going to be vaccinated. The grandparents already had COVID. The aunt who was in charge of everyone had not been vaccinated because she was frightened. And mm. Dr. Wiley knew she had to go back home, and she mm. had to really help them understand that she loved them and that she was a doctor and that they could trust her and that she would help them take the steps. And it's fascinating because the aunt was on the show too, and she talked Mm. about how frightened she was, but that the seriousness with which her niece had come home made her believe this this could be good. And what she then did is bring groups from her church. They all Mm. went together to get the vaccine. So when we talk about balancing a distrust of the medical system, sometimes we need envoys who are who are who are really respected and we have to that's what maybe we're not doing well enough and that is thinking who could be an envoy to this community why would they trust me off the top so um, having worked with military unless they trust you this was in the fire department after 9-11 if I was running a group I needed one of those firefighters to say she's okay she gets it right right so so I think it's something similar to that Absolutely. Uh, I mean, for us in, in, in mental health, you know, you and I, we're, we're accustomed to understanding that it takes a village to do any of this, that it, mm-hmm. everything takes a team. And I, I was reminded of this even just yesterday, actually. I was, I was consulting on a, on a case for a patient who was um, in the hospital in the medical floor and is refusing treatment. And regardless of what the doctor said, the, her surgical team this is, you know, life-saving treatment, and this is someone, she needed a surgical procedure, and she doesn't have any psychiatric reason to be refusing it, so they called us anyway. Ultimately, after saying to everyone, listen, I, I don't trust you guys, no offense, the husband said to me, Doc, you know, I think we got to call in reinforcements. And I said, what do you mean? Who, who are the reinforcements? Who's going to come back us up? He said, you know, this, this elder woman in our church is someone that she really trusts, and I okay. think if she was to come and be a member of the team. And I said, there you go. That's... And for us in the medical community, as you said, we have to have the humility here that we don't have the monopoly on people's trust. Right. You know, that we, are, we are a team at the end of the day, and a team with a common goal. And our common goal is for us to have the person be well. However we get there, and the more team members we actually involve, um, the better. And I think some of these grassroots campaigns now that are approaching this vaccine conversation are pivotal because... You know, as you saw recently in, in the news, Pope Francis, for example, one obviously a, a known religious leader, who came out and said, you know, the vaccine is an act of love. And this is something that should be done mm. by, by Catholics because it's, it's an expression of love and it's, it is a moral imperative. Well, for me as a physician, that's something I'm going to have in my mind the same way I have, you know, the latest New England Journal studies because it's relevant to the people I'm speaking with. And, and for us, if we think of it that way, if we 
we don't believe that the, the doctor is the most important person in the, in the team, but rather they're one person in the team. And the most important person in the, in the team is whoever the patient <laughs> trusts the most. If right, they trust right. their faith community, that's great. Now, we both saw the, um, the the mini documentary on this woman, Dorothy Oliver. She's in Alabama. She's incredible. She got 94% of the people in her town vaccinated. And if you see it, it's what she did is say, okay, mm. um, nobody's going to care about where we are. There's no mm. close vaccination center here. It's 40 miles away. This area is majority black. That kind of puts us on the back burner. That's just mm. it. In her words, she says, I mean, you don't have to put nothing else down about that. That's it. So she then proceeds to get the approval of a group to come and vaccinate this community if she could get 40 people. And it's exactly what you're saying, Dr. Mirholm. She, A, recognizes it's not going to take just one step. She knocks on doors. She goes to people's homes. She teases them into it. She, she, she checks up on them. And she actually makes it possible for 94% of the people in that town to get it. And it made me think of Snyder's Hope Scale, which talks about willpower and waypower. You can get somebody to want to do it, but if you don't have a way, mm-hmm. once they are agreeing, like bringing the clinic to them, mm-hmm. like bringing the elder woman into that hospital, in mm-hmm. some way it's not going to happen. So it. I mean, I think part of, as you say, the humility of any of the mental health or medical practitioners is we have to be creative and we have to be humble right. and respectful. Yeah. So, I mean, it's your your points are really unbelievably important. We're going to have to take a break. And then when we come back on the other side of it, we're going to take a look at skepticism and how do we find common ground. You've been listening to Psych Up Live. We're here speaking with Dr. Mina Mirham about using respect to approach vaccine hesitancy. He's an assistant professor of psychiatry at Columbia University. He's the medical director of the Department of Psychiatry at Clara Mass Medical Center, board certified psychiatrist, and a consultant for the NBA Players Association, treating players and staff. Stay with us. Much more to come. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Tune in every week for Making Action Happen, hosted by Sarah Blackhurst and Brian McCain. The program takes you inside Action 22, a Colorado-based community outreach organization established in 1999. The show focuses on public policies, both politically driven or not, which have ongoing and immediate impact on the Colorado community and the world. It doesn't matter where you are, you can make action happen. Listen Thursdays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, and 1 p.m. Mountain Time on Voice America Variety. Planning for college? 
Tune in to Getting In, a college coach conversation for tips, techniques, and insider perspectives. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton, a former admissions officer at the University of Pennsylvania and featuring her fellow admissions and college finance experts from Bright Horizons College Coach. The show shares what colleges are really looking for and how to highlight your hard-won achievements for the best chance of success. New episodes air every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. A brave heart is anyone with the courage to be of service to others. If you have that courage, then Bravehearts Radio with Brian Reinbold is for you. Even if you aren't yet, you'll want to still tune in to get inspired, create your own story to share, and change your life for the better. Listen to the stories of service and courage shared by amazing guests and your input too. Listen for Bravehearts Radio Mondays at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Remember, doing good anywhere does good everywhere. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now, back to Psych Up Live. Hi, folks. Welcome back. We're speaking with Dr. Mina Mirholm, and we're just going to start to speak about the question of skepticism in terms of medicine and finding a common ground. And I asked Dr. Mirholm if he would explain to our listeners, what does it actually mean that the Pfizer vaccine now has full approval? Yes, thank you so much, Dr. Phillips. Uh, So this part is important because the medical community, again, was very excited about the full approval because the FDA approval process is incredibly rigorous and many, many um, drugs are rejected on a regular basis because it is so robust and it goes through first all the clinical trials involved in this medication or this vaccine in this case. It goes in detail about the risks and benefits um, and monitors rigorously any side effect that's been reported, as well as manufacturing guidelines that are in the process of creating the vaccine as well. So the FDA full approval process means that many, many, many sets of data have been reviewed carefully over months um, of thousands and thousands of people. The safety and the efficacy of this vaccine uh, were reviewed carefully. And now they can finally put their full stamp of approval uh, on it, which which is a big, big deal. Mm-hmm. Now, correct correct me on this one. The, the emergency approval they got did not mean that anything was different than, than it was now. It just meant that with it, to get an emergency approval, you have to wait two to three months to see what side effects might emerge. And when they did not emerge, they, okay, they therefore had to, the, the emergency approval. And to get full approval, you have to wait six months post-vaccines and the distribution of them. And, and we have 170 million vaccines that have been distributed. And it's the six-month mark that is needed to get full approval. Is that correct? 
That's absolutely correct. Yes. So definitely a part of it here is the timing in terms of, and and the reason for that timing, just so folks can understand, is because it's not simply that you're going to wait a few months and uh, kind of sit on the data and then see what happens, but rather in this whole process, there's a continual review and monitoring of um, of what's coming out as far as side effects being reported, uh, hospitalization data, uh, safety, efficacy. So as you put the aggregate amount of information out six months later, well, now you, you have sort of a, a mountain of evidence that says, well, this, is, this can have the full approval. Mm-hmm. You know, um, as I've been thinking about this in terms of skepticism, <clears throat> my mother came from um, a family. They were, they were immigrants in this country, and her second to oldest sister, there were five children, got polio. And I have, I have when I've been in the field a long time, and some of my older colleagues, a few of them had had polio. And I think to myself, um, Dr. Mirhan, I'm guessing and I'm betting that if there had been a polio vaccine available, I do not think my mother's family would have gotten it. They were business people, but I believe they would have been, being new to the country, they would have been very skeptical about it. And so the sad part, though, is that we have almost wiped out polio worldwide because of the polio vaccine. So, you know, when we look at the fact that now children are going to be affected and we want to try to get vaccines approval adequate for them, it makes me think back to how do we help people feel safe? How is the information given in a way that doesn't confound the fear? Mm. Yeah, I, uh, I think that's such an important point for us to kind of really dive into this skepticism point. And I, and I agree with you that, you know, even at the time of polio, there, um, there would have been skepticism and kind of fear then, too. And for us to tackle it now, I think a beginning point of the conversation should begin by saying having a level of healthy skepticism is good. Mm-hmm. We, in the medical community, certainly when not every time uh, a medicine comes out or, uh, you know, a representative from a drug company says, hey, prescribe this, we don't just do that, right? Or for any of us, if we see a, uh, a commercial that says, talk to your doctor about so-and-so, we don't just right. go talk to our doctor about so-and-so, right? So I think the reason starting that is important is to say that it's, it's, it's okay to feel this way, this kind of uh, initial skepticism. It's okay to feel like, you know, I want to be informed, um, but the key, if, if the audience can kind of keep this in mind, this pearl, is you just don't want to turn your skepticism into cynicism, you know, because the initial question is helpful. But to, to ask a question and feel like it's unanswerable, and to say, well, I don't know, I can't really trust this vaccine. Well, trust can be built. Trust can be developed. Can we talk about what are the things that are causing us not to feel this trust um, or to have questions? Because to people's surprise, sometimes when once we kind of are this far along in the process and we're we're sort of disarmed, right, and there isn't a, a lot of emotional tension, uh, people are, oh, I didn't I didn't know that I didn't know that there was this potential uh, you know quote unquote conspiracy theory was already debunked or this was already studied. Um, so I think the idea of approaching skepticism is to first validate it, and then uh, as we do with anything that's an informed consent in medicine, right, which is to understand risk benefit, alternative, why would this be something that for me as an informed consumer, an informed patient, why is this the best decision for me? And ultimately, it is definitely my decision, um, but I want to make the the most informed decision for my own health. Mm -hmm. And as you said, Pope Francis says, and it turns out with something like a pandemic, it becomes our own health 
and the family's health and other people's health. I mean, I think I know of grandmothers who, and it bears on your very first example, were very frightened, but there was no way they were not going to see their grandchildren. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes the scale is tipped um, just by reason of I'll swallow and do it because mm-hmm. of someone else. But I like what you're saying. We want people to have some skepticism, and but we want there to be, on the part of the medical profession, a respectful response mm-hmm. to, let's say someone says, um, I'm not going to do COVID-19 because I heard that it makes you infertile. Mm-hmm. So what do we say in that kind of a situation? That's, of course, one of the things that have been commonly said. I think here is the key for this conversation, this exchange. To begin with, I think here's what we should not say. <laughs> we should not be uh, dismissive of this person and, uh, and say, oh, where did you see this Facebook, you know, and just kind of roll our eyes again at this thing. Um, we begin, again, I think the important first response to that is, well, I know that then fertility is an important thing for you. I know this is something that's that you care about. Um, so again, you, you you build the bridge there. Is that what you care about? I care about too. As your doctor, I would never want you to have something that's gonna, you know, take away your fertility. After we establish that, then the secondary thing is, well, I know that this claim is kind of put put out there um, on on the internet at times, and I want to reassure you that the reason for this particular concern is that people thought there was a protein in the vaccine that's similar maybe to another protein. Um, and because of these, this kind of overlap, they thought or someone speculated that there would be this issue with, with fertility. However, here's what we know. We know that not only is this now not true and it has been kind of debunked, but we know that millions and millions of people who have taken the vaccine have gone on to have children, so much so that now the latest evidence um, from the American College of um, Obstetrics and Gynecology is strongly urging pregnant women or folks who are trying to become pregnant to actually take the vaccine because we now have more and more data that this idea of the vaccine causing infertility is actually not true. Um, but the way we would have that discussion, again, is is to respect the concern, to respect the fear of, hey, I, I would never want something to make me infertile, um, but to respond, you know, in a kind way to say, well, you know, I'm, I'm with you in that fear and here's kind of what we know from the facts. Mm-hmm. Great. Now, there have been vaccines. There are, there are people, they're wonderful parents. They're very scrupulous about anything hurting or harming their children. They identify themselves as anti-vaxxers, and they do associate vaccines with autism. Hmm. Um, and uh, I, I think it's been very hard because we don't know what information they're reading and we know that they have their children's best interest at heart. So how do you approach someone who says, I, I've heard about the connection between autism and the measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine. Why would this be any different? I protected my children thus far. Yeah, similar to what you said there, I think here's the key is that we have to first acknowledge that, hey, you as a parent, you want the best for your children. Uh, and for me as your medical provider or as, as your friend, I feel the same way. I want the best for your children as well. So um, we begin by that part, again, saying that we're kind of on the same team. Once we go from that, we begin to unpack it a little bit, right? Is that, well, maybe what you've heard regarding the MMR vaccine um, causing autism or being related on, on any level, 
Did you know kind of what the historical context was of that? Did you know that the person who began to put out that piece of misinformation has been debunked many, many times over time, and that sometimes understanding a little bit of the background, um, again, in a, in a kind, respectful way, um, that caused hes- hesitancy and fear of the MMR vaccine for many, many people. But it wasn't true then. It wasn't true of that vaccine. And now it brings us again to um, your care for your child. As someone who wants the best for your child, here are the things that you're looking at. You're looking at the possibility of this virus, which we've seen now all kinds of complications and long-haul symptoms, neurologically, cardiovascularly, emotionally, psychiatrically, and you have the vaccine. So you have these two possibilities. Neither decision here would be zero risk, right, because you have to kind of compare apples and apples. When you compare what's happening potentially with your child getting COVID and you compare what we know from studies about the vaccine, you really are seeing there is no risk for autism here in children who were born now. We've had, we, now we've had the vaccine for, um, for some time, and we were able to kind of see, uh, you know, the impact on, um, on pregnant women, women who are, who are delivering. So you want to just walk back for a second the fear, uh, which is healthy and understandable, um, and you want to compare the risks of both having uh, COVID, getting this virus, uh, as well as with uh, getting the vaccine. And when you put them both head-to-head, definitely the, the vaccine is much safer for you, and there isn't any, any link here um, to things like autism. Mm-hmm. So it, that's wonderful what you said. So if I'm one of these moms and I'm worried, or dads, um, do you circle back to me? Do you... Um, do you ask if you can reach out and see how I'm feeling about this option at a later time? Absolutely. You know, and this is kind of um, what we were mentioning earlier, too, is that the, the way I sort of envision this conversation, maybe because I'm a, I'm a sports guy, so it's sort of like if you think about, you know, a football game, right? If you're trying to go from, you know, one end of the field to the other, you can just try to throw, you know, the Hail Mary pass, you know, just kind of go from the beginning all the way to the end and have the vaccine done right there on the, on the spot. But what's the, the strategy here, right, that what most teams will do, a good strategic player, will just advance down the field, you know, 10 yards at a time, maybe get a first down here and there. And I think the first down in our conversations can be sometimes it's just for perhaps a mom or a dad who's worried about autism and wasn't dismissed by their, by their doctor. A doctor will say, you know, autism is a very challenging diagnosis to have for a child, and I know that you wouldn't necessarily want to, you know, um, have that for your child, especially if it's something that can be prevented. You wouldn't want it to be caused by medicine, certainly, or caused by a vaccine. And just sometimes hearing that, that you're not, you know, unreasonable for having that fear, and then maybe circling back and say, oh, you know, I encourage you, maybe you could Google some stuff, but maybe if you Google some stuff and we talk about it and we see how you feel and we see how do we look at reliable sources, you know, certainly not everything on the Internet is... Uh, equally reliable, even though it all comes back on, you know, one news feed or, or, or such. But so how do I, as your medical professional or as your friend or as your advocate, how do I be, how do I become a resource for you to be a, a better informed parent, right? Because you ultimately, it's scary being a parent. You want to make the best decision for your child, but you want to do that with the help of all the resources around you. You don't mm-hmm. want to miss out on on the knowledge of your doctor or the knowledge of you know, an advocate for you, um, just solely out of fear. 
it, it's a great answer. And it also makes me think that in many of these cases, Dr. Mirham, uh, we're dealing with a couple. And sometimes mm. one is more receptive to the professional than the other. But I think um, the same rules sort of apply. And that is um, to invite them to kind of join forces in thinking about this together. In, and to discuss it at home and to come back because sometimes the third person, the therapist, the counselor, uh, the pastor or whoever really has has leverage when they're both there because then they both have heard what you've said. And it's, it's, it's terrifying. I think that we have to recognize that some people are terrified by this. Yes. And so the, taking it step by step, and I love your suggestion of... Okay, I'm happy to hear that you're willing to talk about that, step one, or I'm happy to hear that you spoke to some of your friends about it. I mean, as you describe in this key, you complement and support any step toward a valuable and healthy decision. Yes, I think that's critical. That's critical because this is something I think that we have to understand as, as folks either in the healthcare community or someone who's just a friend you know, who's, who's trying to support someone make this difficult decision is sometimes we may be shocked by someone saying to us a wild, you know, quote-unquote conspiracy theory. But if we embrace that as, hey, well, this is so great that they're trusting me enough to verbalize something that could sound outlandish in their mind, um, but at least now they're getting it out there. At least they're, we should be almost, you know, trying to elicit these kind of things. We should be looking for these kind of, uh, you know, random conspiracy theory or a random Google fact that they know or whatever. Because once it's on the table, now once it's in the room, once it's in the conversation, then you can engage with it, right? Mm -hmm. the, The difficulty actually is when that person doesn't feel safe enough still to be able to share those thoughts with you, to be able to share the fear in reality, not just kind of on the surface. Um, I think once we have that, then we can begin to have them, you know, sharing their lives, their fears, their, their, what's really going on inside. And from there is when we can actually begin to make progress. Mm-hmm. I even think being in the position I was in with one situation where the person thought the vaccine was somehow associated with abortive um, tissue, abortive infant tissue. And I said, you know, I, I'm, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to look this up also. I'm going to get back to you on this. So that it was sort of in the vein of what you're saying. I wasn't saying this is a crazy, crazy thing, um, but that I could at least find the research on it um, and come back. And so that we at least stayed connected with respect to it. And I think that's very big in terms of your position is respect the person who you're trying to convince something so that it becomes a mutual change of mind, not just you driving something down someone's throat. Right, and oftentimes this is um, the upside-down version of the medical model, to be honest with you. People are speaking with a doctor or speaking with you know, a mental health professional for, for, or, or in any kind of setting. Um, there is this sense of it's somewhat paternalistic of, okay, well, do, you, know, you should do what I'm saying because I am the expert. The reality I'm gonna here. I'm gonna stop I'm gonna stop you right there and I apologize. I'm getting a sign that we have to take a break, but let's come back with that upside down medical model on the other side of the break, Doctor um, sure. Mirham. I'm sorry. Sure. Um, we're gonna take a break. You've been listening to Psych Up Live. We're taking on and looking at all the aspects of vaccine hesitancy and how to approach it. Stay with us. We'll be right back. 
The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Tune in every Friday to get your weekend kickoff early. Join the legendary G. Keith Alexander for What's Hot Harlem America. The flagship show of the new Harlem America Digital Network has something for everyone. From the latest in entertainment to empowerment, health and wellness, and more, we'll bring you a variety of fresh viewpoints, voices, and ideas. What's Hot Harlem America with G. Keith Alexander can be heard every Friday at 1 p.m. in New York and 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Listen for Go to Health Radio. Featuring host Jonathan Marks and health experts from around the world who bring evidence-based education from Western, alternative, and holistic practices. We bring together you, seeking relevant and proven information for your healthcare needs and reputable healthcare experts and companies who offer quality education for your benefit. Monthly, we also share continuing education for medical professionals. Listen live every Wednesday at 12 noon Pacific Time and 3 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Variety. Today, our 40s sit firmly in midlife. We are starting to feel our place and have many productive years ahead. But now is the best time to plan for our future life. Listen for 45 Forward with host Ron Roel. From retirement to health and technology to caring for our parents, no topic is off the table. We don't have a roadmap to our actual future, but we can start to plan more effectively. Tune into 45 Forward, Mondays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now, back to Psych Up Live. Hi, folks. Welcome back. We were just speaking about Dr. Mina Mirhon and myself. In, when you're dealing with someone or a group who seems to be quite enmeshed in conspiracy theory or terror about the vaccine for themselves or their children, Dr. Miram, you're suggesting we use a kind of upside-down physician model. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that. Sure, yeah. And, and what I mean by that is that traditionally or in the past, there was this kind of idea that you go to the doctor and the doctor is the expert and they tell you what to do. They tell you take this or take that. or And it's somewhat uh, paternalistic in a sense, right? There is the, the expert in the room is the doctor. And I think the upside-down version of it where we really can kind of be going forward as as a healthcare community, is really the patient is the one who's in charge. The person in the room who's the decision maker who holds the reality is that's always been the case. But sometimes doctors thought that if you say something really assertively that the patient will take the medicine. But that's always been the case that the decision is in the hand of the patient. And why does that matter? Is that if if you, for example, listener, are, are someone that you're unsure and you're hesitant and you're not, you know, you want to get more information, you can be empowered to sort of walk in with your doctor and to know that they are your your consulting expert, that their role in your life is to give you the information and the data and uh, do the hard work of the research to give you, to kind of hand it to you on a platter, 
And then you can decide what to do with that. Mm-hmm. You can decide mm-hmm. to say, well, maybe I'll take it, maybe I won't. Um, but it also takes away, because there is one of the reasons that, that folks will sometimes turn to you know, a, a community where there might be um, a conspiracy theory, uh, as, as we sort of can label them or call them, is because they feel validated. They feel like, well, there's someone out there who's saying to me, who's willing to hear me out, willing to hear my concerns, and they agree with me. And they're saying, yes, sometimes we don't trust the medical community. Sometimes we don't trust the government. And sometimes we don't trust pharmaceutical companies. So instead, what I would invite you to do in the upside-down model is bring those concerns to a healthcare provider and say, you know what, sometimes I worry if I can really trust the government or pharmaceuticals or even you guys. For me mm-hmm. as a doctor, I, I love to hear that because that mm-hmm. will then allow me to say, well, I'm, I'm with you there. I, we've all felt that at, at times, and here's how we can kind of walk forward from that together. Mm-hmm. I, I, I couldn't agree more, and I, I think one of the things you're saying that's very true about people and the need for connection is if, if a group that's believing a conspiracy theory is a group that makes me feel I belong, and it makes validate some of the um, abuse I have felt by the establishment um, or the demeaning I have continued to feel. No matter what they start to believe, I'm going to adhere to it. And so you're saying, can we open a door again and say, we're not opening the door to tell you you're all wrong. We're opening the door to see if you'll consider talking about what you believe in and could I help you in any way. Um, and exactly. and and that really brings us to the question I asked you at the break. So you're the consultant to the NBA players and staff. Have you been charged with encouraging them to be vaccinated? Yeah. So as as you know, for for the NBA, and I've been in close contact even with the medical director for the NFL, and this has been a huge point of contention at times because there are. The NBA community is, the, is sort of a cross-section of, uh, of the states in, in general. There are some folks who are very outspoken about we should all receive the vaccine, this is critical, and it must be done. Um, and there are others who are still a bit hesitant for a different reason, because the context here, as we said, right, consider the context. If you're a multi-million dollar making athlete and the, your livelihood is your body and you're at such a high level of fitness that you're unsure how anything can, can sort of affect you. It explains kind of their hesitation in, in a similar way that the, the general population would. Mm. But this, direct, this directly begins to affect, you know, how, how you earn a living. Even if your, your motor skills are not at 100%, but they're at 99, that'll make a big difference. So we've had some really interesting discussions, uh, again, in a, in a respectful way. You know, the Players Association, I think, has done a tremendous job of engaging with players. There's been a community of players who are, because again, they feel, apart from even the individual uh, impact, um, both the NFL uh, that had a very strong stance here about how players would be potentially fined or games might be canceled if there's a COVID outbreak, and the NBA has been very proactive about how it handles COVID, but there is a sense of community here. There's a sense that it's not just me as a player, Mm -hmm. but if I get sick and that causes a game to get canceled, this impacts all the other guys that I play with and the staff and the team. So I think a, a sort of a, a thing for us to, to keep in mind from the NBA and that can also help us think about this topic too is that the players are, are really realizing that A, yes, it is their individual health, but B, 
there is a collective health here that mm-hmm. we have to think. So they're very much like a family. You know, very you put so. out something that I hadn't thought of before, and that is, okay, if my if my body and my strength and my perfection um, of response athletically is is key to who I am. Do I risk the side effect of COVID, which we see 170 million people have been vaccinated? We don't see much in the way of side effects. Or do I actually risk long-term impact after actually getting COVID? Um, There is really, there's a decision there. There's two unknowns in that situation. Because we don't, I don't know if we think people have said, I'm strong, I'm big, I'm strong, uh, I could handle COVID. But we haven't necessarily seen anything that says if you weigh over 200 pounds and you're a football player, you will have a very light case. I don't don't know that we have that. Um, I think that so that it's a really, it's very fair what they're asking. But the other side, and that's the family side that we started with, um, how can grandma come if now little ones can be infected because now we have a variant that has somewhat changed COVID. Mm-hmm. It's, and it's the question we've been asking um, throughout the show, which is how do we balance fear with community concern? Absolutely. And I think whether we you know with that question, whether we're talking about grandma and the little ones or we're talking about a high-level performance athlete, the key, as you're pointing out to here, is there are these unknowns, but not everything is unknown, right? Sometimes when we have some unknowns in the process, it feels like everything is sort of equally unknown, that everything is equally ambiguous. Mm-hmm. But the reality is we now know a lot more than we did a year ago. Both right. about what happened with the, with the virus, as you said, and, I've, and as I'm seeing kind of day to day here, um, even if you get it and recover, even if you get it and you're doing fantastic, what that can do we also know a lot about what you what happens with the vaccine in 24 hours, in three months, in six months. Mm-hmm. So, I think this is one thing that I want the listeners to kind of think about, and this is how you know players are making this decision as well as grandmas. Is what do I what do I know? How do I combat my fear with some things that are not unknown, that there are facts that I can sort of grasp onto, uh, and then for the things that are still unknown, then how do I have someone help me? Uh, navigate those unknowns so that I can make an informed decision. So in a way, I like what you're saying. We do have some real knowns. We we know that people have side effects from having had COVID that seem to right. be much more pronounced and last much longer. So many of my yeah. colleagues who, who got COVID long before we, way back in, before it started, uh, suffered with long-term symptoms after having had COVID. We don't see that from having had the vaccine. So this, you're right about the, the balance of risk is really, and understanding that is really important. Yes, it's critical. It's critical because sometimes when, when we blur those lines a little bit and say, well, what's going to happen? Because one of the questions I've gotten a lot about the vaccine is, well, what happens to us in, in two years? You know, we don't really know. It hasn't been there yet. And the question is the same, what happens to us two years later after getting COVID, but right. we do have, as, as you mentioned here, a lot more information, and 
we've seen now that this virus is so powerful that it's actually impacting so many different systems in your body. If you're not as concerned about how it impacts, you know, your heart, but you're concerned more about how it impacts your mind or your your ability to smell or taste or uh, this kind of foggy feeling that it can have uh, as, as one of the long-haul symptoms, there's such a variety of symptoms that can happen as, as the long version or the long-haul symptoms of covid Mm. And we're really just not seeing that with the vaccine months and months and months afterwards. Is it possible that something can happen two years down the line, five years down the line? Sure, there there are these possibilities you never know. But what we do know, again, facts about vaccines is that the majority of side effects are seen very early on. You don't get a vaccine right. and five years later something happens. Right. So, again, it's just understanding, you know, this risk assessment is, is so key um, for us to be able to compare, you know, uh, things correctly. Terrific, terrific. So I would like you to tell our listeners how they could find you and maybe you could give us a take-home message. Sure. Yeah, I would love to connect with your listeners um, on uh, Twitter, Instagram, or my website. They're all the same handle, uh, Dr. Mirholm, uh, that's D-R-M-I-R-H-O-M. Uh, dot com or at Dr. Mirholm on Twitter or on Instagram. And I would love to hear from you. And the take-home message, I think, for me truly, if um, if you're on the fence to know it's perfectly okay and to know that that feeling of fear, of hesitation um, can be fine and can be healthy, but bring that feeling, bring that hesitation to a trusted source who can kind of walk you through it in a kind and respectful and appropriate manner. And if you're on the other side, if you're the person who is receiving a person who's hesitant, please know that this is a sacred opportunity to walk someone through this in a respectful and kind way because at the end of the day, I've seen this day and day, you know, time and time again, it can make a world of difference um, and someone will be convinced um, with the right approach. Mm, I want to thank you, Dr. Um, Mina Mirham. You really modeled what you talked about because you really modeled a respect with information and with true empathy for people's situation when they're trying to make decisions about COVID and vaccines. So thank you again for your work, and thank you for joining me on Psych Up Live. My pleasure, Dr. Phillips. It was such a privilege and an honor, and thank you so much for having me. You're very welcome. I want to thank my listeners. Remember, you can hear this and any prior show as a podcast. This will be a podcast by 6 p.m. Eastern on my host site, my website, but also on every platform, iPhones, on your iPhones, on iTunes, Stitcher, Apple, Amazon Audible, Google Play, Amazon Alexa, Alexa, etc. Drop me a comment or a question at radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Remember, until next week, please be safe, thanks, and be listening. Thank you for tuning in to Psych Up Live. Please join Dr. Suzanne Phillips for another edition of our programming next Thursday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until then, be well and be listening.